Well, good morning. All right. Well, I appreciate uh, the elders uh, here at Overland Hills Church giving me an opportunity uh, to bring the Word of God to you this morning to preach. And I think it's fitting that on this day, the kids are in here with us too. Uh, the kids are used to me standing here up in front of them, uh, but I'm sorry, kids, we're not going to open with the Awana theme song or any of the club songs today, uh, even though it would be very entertaining to see your parents uh, do the actions. Maybe we'll plan that on a different occasion. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Sam Greenwell. My family uh, and I, we've been members here at Overland Hills Church uh, starting in 2015, and we took a little break in 2017 when we moved to Maryland with the Air Force and then returned back here in 2020. So uh, we've been active members here. We've been uh, invested in the Awana program here, ministering to, to the youth among us, uh, and then uh, women's ministries and, and numerous other functions. Uh, so glad to be here with you uh, in, in preaching this morning. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our text. Our Heavenly Father, we feel the frailty of our faith, and we desire intimate fellowship with you as we look into your word. And Lord, we depend on your precious and very great promises that through them we might be partakers of your divine nature. Lord, as we come to you, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your prophetic word, that we might perceive and experience the blessing of those great and pre precious promises that you give to your children. Amen. Well, in 323 BC, as Alexander the Great was, lay dying at the age of 32, after a short unexpe unexpected illness in the city of Babylon, his military commanders and friends gathered around him, wondering who would he appoint to be his successor of his vast kingdom? Would it be his son by a Bactrian princess, Alexander IV, his mentally handicapped half-brother, Aridaeus, or maybe his uh, illegitimate son, Hercules, through a Persian noblewoman? Would it be one of his closest military commanders? In his closing moments of life, those present leaned in to hear his final decree. Who would lead that Macedonian army? Who would rule the massive territories he'd spent over a decade conquering, uh, covering Mediterranean Europe, Africa, the Middle East, uh, Northern Africa, up into Afghanistan? Who would rule this vast kingdom? To whom will your empire pass? And in his final words, he said, to the strongest. Alexander the Great's last words set the stage for a massive shockwave of power struggles and a succession of rulers that is, truth be told, still felt even today. Words are powerful, both for good or for evil. James chapter 3, uh, starting in, chapter, or in verse 5, states, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The, prover the Proverbs agree, stating in Proverbs 10, 19, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent or wise. Words are powerful, but last words in particular, those words that someone chooses uh, at the end of their life, 
the final words they choose are particularly clarifying, aren't they? If any of you has been in an argument, you've likely made your best attempt to have the last word. If you're a parent, your last words to your teen as they get ready to go out with their friends is, make sure to text me when you get there, drive safely, or I love you. In our culture, we're familiar with those dramatic movie scenes, uh, yes, that where the main character just seemingly miraculously always has an opportunity with their dying breath to utter a last few words. And as humans, we're drawn to last words, not only in fiction, but also in the stories of our fellow man, aren't we? Words from one who's facing imminent death, they're particularly clarifying because they reveal very pointedly that individual's priorities. They, they reveal that person's character in a unique way. What you say in your last moments, in your last words, binds up your greatest hopes, your greatest anxieties, affections, and your comforts in that brief moment. In essence, it's a distillation of what an individual has spent an entire life uh, trying to convey to others around them. A particular example that captured my attention uh, over 30 years ago, when I first saw the Ken Burns documentary, Civil War, uh, still touches me even now. And it's a letter. I'm going to read just a small fraction of that letter. But it's a letter of 32-year-old Sullivan Ballou to his young wife. He's a Union soldier in the Rhode Island Infantry. And just prior to his death in battle, he wrote this. He said, my very dear wife, indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow, lest I should not be able to write you again. I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. I cannot describe to you my feelings on this calm summer night when 2,000 men are sleeping around me, many of them enjoying the last, perhaps before that of death. And I, suspicious that death is creeping behind me with his fatal dart and communing with God, my country, and thee. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on with all those chains to the battlefield. The memories of all the blissful moments I have spent with you come crowding over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I have enjoyed them so long. How hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived in love together and seen our boys grow up to honorable manhood around us. I know I have but few claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me. Perhaps it is the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How gladly I would wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness and struggle with all the misfortune of this world to shield you and my children from harm. But I cannot. I must watch you from the spirit land and hover near you while you buffet the storms with your precious little freight and wait with sad patience till we meet to part no more. Sarah, do not mourn me, dear. Think I am gone and wait for me. 
for we shall meet again. And again, he penned those words days prior to his death in battle. And as you might have anticipated already, Scripture too is filled with numerous examples of last words that capture the heart. They capture the heart of faithful believers as they faced either a natural death or, in many cases, a sudden unnatural ending, martyrdom of their lives due to their faithful witness. Examples that come uh, to my mind and maybe come to your mind off the top of your head are Moses, Deuteronomy 32. He says, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Perhaps your mind goes to Joshua, Joshua 24, 14. Thou therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And skipping down, he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you've been here during Sunday school, perhaps your mind goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And just a couple more, perhaps you think of Stephen, Acts 7. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then finally, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching and skipping to verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure has come. Last words. They're clarifying, aren't they? They show once again what a distillation of the person's character, what matters most to them in those final moments. And as I reflect on my own life, and perhaps you've done the same, I've remarked that my character, who I am, who I am at home, at work, who I am at church, that there can be no difference between those persons. I must be the same. There must be consistency in my character. And there must be consistency likewise in my first words and my last words. There must be that consistency throughout my life. There must be that harmony. And perhaps that's what attracted me to this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, given my first opportunity to preach here at Overland Hills Church a desire to highlight important last words and emphasize the point that today's words, the words we use today, must be consistent with the tenor of our last words, our hope for those last words, and that this also provides valuable insight for living our present life. This morning in our time together, I'll focus on some of the last words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. And in these final words, Peter addresses believers living in a world not unlike our own, actually. One where the seedbed of Gnosticism was starting to sprout. And this early Gnosticism prized spirituality, but its adherents did not believe that they needed to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They also prized knowledge and rhetoric, but denied any doctrine that might stifle their pursuit of pleasure. In this emerging ism, Gnosticism, 
This ideology was presenting Christians with conflicting visions of the world to think through as they sought to understand what it is to think and live in a world, particularly a world that is antagonistic to the things of Christ. So in this epistle, Peter highlights uh, in briefly the essential nature of faith in Christ for the believer, but not a faith that is blind. It is a faith he encourages that is steeped in the knowledge of Christ, a faith that is steeped in the knowledge of Christ. He then moves to explaining how that knowledge moves inexorably from the head to produce righteous living, righteous living that comes with the benefit of providing assurance of salvation for the believer, particularly the believer living in an unbelieving world. And finally, as Peter reminds these believers that he is approaching death, he affirms what they already know, that their faith is not grounded in myths, but in a Savior who manifested himself in the flesh, giving witness to God's activity among mankind, and which was faithfully recorded in the words of Scripture. Now, my disclaimer before I jump into the text is, in this lengthy passage, I simply cannot put equal emphasis on each verse, uh, unless you would like to stay with me until about two o'clock. Foregoing that is an option. Uh, I cannot give equal weight to to each of these words in this passage. But I do want to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, as we start, as we get into the entirety of the text and give at least a broad brush overview of this passage to give a flavor of Peter's emphasis as we go through this. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Again, last words. Let's go ahead and dive in. We'll read the entirety of 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, or Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, is they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the, P, the picture we see in 2 Peter chapter 1 paints a picture of a society that is much like ours, a society given to humanistic tendencies, doubtful of God's or any particular God's interest in their actions, a society where desire for virtue is quickly overcome and abandoned due to apathy or an overwhelming lust for desire, for, to fulfill desires. Believers facing a societal bombardment from without, which castigated their beliefs and their upright walk with the Lord, also struggled with a personal bombardment from within, including the frailty of their own faith, the power of remaining sin in their lives, and the struggle to understand the promises of God through Jesus Christ. They were uncertain of their salvation. These believers faced skeptical views around them, such as, do you really believe that old wives' tale, that fable about Jesus? Are you one of those people who believe that he's God's son and the only way to salvation? Really? That was the kind of mentality, the kind of attitude they faced. Does that sound familiar? We too, in an age of skepticism, struggle with what we think and say and do. We struggle with the remaining sin that plagues us. We desire assurance of salvation, especially since our lives are not as faithful to Christ as we would like. As the world moves increasingly further away from Christianity, away from truth, uh, away from trust and faith in the God in the Bible, the faithful take comfort in being reminded of foundational truths. That's what's, what Peter is doing here, reminding them of foundational truths of how to live, of learning that they can have assurance of salvation, even in the face of a world that mocks them and attempts to silence them. If these sentiments resonate with you, then Peter's words to you today will be a timely encouragement and reminder. So for our three points today, we'll start with Peter highlighting the essential nature of faith in Christ for the believer but not a faith that is blind. Rather, it is a faith that is steeped in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Faith that is steeped in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For our second point, he moves then to explaining how that knowledge moves inexorably from the head to produce righteous living. Righteous living that comes with the benefit of providing assurance of salvation for the believer. 
And finally, as Peter reminds these believers that he is approaching death, he reaffirms what they already know, that their faith is not grounded in myths, but in a Savior who manifested himself in the flesh, giving witness to God's activity among mankind, which was faithfully recorded in the words of Scripture. So, to our first point, verses 1 and 2. Again, Peter highlighting the essential nature of faith in Christ for the believer, but not a faith that is blind, a faith that is steeped in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, starting in verse 1 again. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained, sorry, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice that Peter starts this, again, his final letter, his final words, with faith. A faith that he shares with the recipients of this letter. His faith in Christ is of equal standing with theirs. There's no superiority, no hierarchy. It is a shared faith because it is not of themselves. It is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a similar sentiment to a verse that you probably are more familiar with, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Again, there's no hierarchy in our faith. There's no hierarchy in our salvation. It is given by God. It is a gift. True saving faith in Christ must be highlighted again and again as the foundation of all that comes after in this letter of Peter. Because if it is not, the rest of Peter's instruction can quickly descend into mere moralism. So faith has to be uh, and continue to be the foundation of this passage. Second, Peter's use of the, the term God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is no small proclamation. It's no offhanded comment. It is a clear statement of Christ's deity, calling Christ both God and Savior. Critical scholars have looked at this uh, over the years. They've looked with skepticism at, uh, at the forcefulness of this claim. But an honest look at the Greek construction of the language affirms that God and Savior Jesus Christ is a faithful normative reading rather than the hoops critical scholars will jump through to get this passage to be uh, something, a, a more tame version, uh, something that's more palatable, where they would read it, God, comma, and Savior Jesus Christ. No, it is God and Savior Jesus Christ maximizing the deity of Christ. And then finally, notice that the grace and peace uh, spoke of here is multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace being God's unmerited favor and peace, a full and intimate loving relationship with God. These are multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For Just for a second, pause and think, if someone stopped you on the street and asked you how, grace, how the grace and peace of God is imparted and multiplied to believers, what would you say? What would you have said before reading this passage? Would you have said, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord? Would you have made that connection? It sounds a bit strange to our ears. In our day, knowledge or gnosis in the Greek 
can get a bad rap. Knowledge or knowing something is, uh, uh, has historically been grounded in the idea of apprehending something that is objectively true. The leaves are green. My truck is blue. Two plus two equals four. So far, I haven't said anything that is controversial. Maybe if I said the dishes are clean, there, there can be some ambiguity there. But if I start down the path of Genesis 1.27, though, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then suddenly, I might be greeted with a look of bemusement, indignation, or rage. Because knowledge in the sense of a moral imperative, a moral obligation that must believe for some is a bridge too far. This type of knowledge is not desirable, by some anyway, because it does not accord with a previously determined view of the world. In that way, perhaps our current day isn't so different from Peter's day after all. Digging in further, that knowledge that is described here of God and of Jesus our Lord that Peter highlights is not simply mental assent, as we described just briefly. It's not mental assent only. It's a much more comprehensive knowledge, encompassing the entirety of a person's thinking, saying, and doing. There is a strong, if I can say experiential, a lived out aspect to the knowledge that Peter is talking about. Turn to James 3, beginning in verse 13. James, in, in that passage, he borrows the Greek word for wisdom, uh, which in that day meant speculative knowledge in philosophy. But he, he took it in this passage, and he infused that with the same all-encompassing lived-out knowledge that Peter does. So again, this is not mere mental assent. It is a lived-out sort of knowledge. It takes what you know to be true, and you live in light of it. That's what they're getting at. James 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is a lived out knowledge. It is wisdom. So we'll get into this more later, but, but for now, put a stake down here uh, as we get ready to think more uh, as Peter brings this idea of knowledge up again. But for now, it's sufficient to know that it is the believing saying and the doing that has Christians at odds with the surrounding society. And that's not unique to our time. It was part and parcel with the recipients of Peter's letter and part of the context into which he used his final words to instruct and encourage these believers. And as well, we must have an expanded view of knowledge ourselves. That is not simply mental assent, but that for the Christian, it is a lived out knowledge and wisdom. So for starters, into his culture and ours, Christians are called to proclaim that faith that he mentioned, this knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In short, we are to proclaim the truth. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
Backing up from there, Acts 4.12. Uh, 4, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. And another favorite Awana verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There is that base of knowledge, but that knowledge must be lived out. It must be a lived out doctrine. Christians know that these things are true and they live in light of them being witness to others that truth, the pairing of knowledge and action lived out in wisdom. So Peter, accustomed to, to these uh, words that, that would have uh, gone against that theme, he uses this epistle as his final oppor opportunity to offer apostolic encouragement to remind believers that there is a complementary nature between faith and knowledge or truth. Their faith, their complete trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross to pay the penalty of their sin is steeped in knowledge, as we will continue to see in this passage. Just as friendship or a marriage depends on a deep understanding, a deep knowledge, an intimate trust shared with the other person, an experiential understanding of that person's character, so too faith in Christ requires requires a deep knowing of who he is, what he has done, why he did it. The deeper our understanding, the deeper our knowledge, the more intimate our relationship with Christ, the more we will enjoy and benefit from his grace and peace. So moving to verse three now. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Just skimming the surface here, in addition to grace and peace flowing to the believer, we are told that his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is God's power, his omnipotent ability to bring his will to pass, independent of anything else that has given believers all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge. Again, there's that, that word knowledge, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence in a crucial connection here in verse four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter saw that that, that lust, that, that desire to fulfill your sinful, uh, your, fulfill your sinful desires was, was plaguing these Christians, was holding them back from being able to experience fully a relationship with Jesus Christ. But it is a a believing and active knowledge of him that helps them to escape the, corrupt, the corruption of active sin. Again, that's connected to his precious and very great promises that are ironclad. God is a God of truth. Everything that he says will come to pass. It is ironclad. But how does he impart this blessing? It might sound strange to our ears, 
But part of the way that he imparts this blessing is through the mechanism, the practice, the experience of having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire by active obedience. By obedience, you, have, you are able to experience more fully um, that blessing of escaping from that sin. Friends, giving in to your sinful desire is not freedom. Is society today, and the, the Gnostics of Peter's day would have affirmed, today's mantra is similar to 1 Corinthians 15.32. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Another place is Romans 6.1, where some will say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? But both, both these ideas miss the mark. Paul's full explanation, if you wanted to turn there to Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul's full explanation of this idea of, of where do we find fulfillment is found there, where he says, what shall we say then? Quoting them, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And then in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, if you are alive in Christ, you walk in newness of life. Dead people don't walk. Alive people do. Dead people plunge headfirst into sin, but alive people do not. Paul gives the description not as a means of causing authentic Christians to doubt their salvation, though it is certainly a call for them to turn from a false view of God's grace. No, he offers this as a means of shocking phony Christians out of their self-deception. So the menu up to this point. We have faith is the foundation of our standing, our relationship with Jesus Christ, who is both God and Savior. That faith is in or by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We receive grace and peace and all things that pertain to life and godliness through his omnipotent power. And finally, Christians become partakers of the divine nature in part by the practice, the experience of having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. But some of you might be thinking, Sam, this sounds great, but this is not my experience. My faith feels frail. My thinking is scattered and divided. I know about the, God, the grace of God through Jesus Christ, but I don't feel at peace. I feel like my head knowledge hasn't made the transition to my lived out life. You aren't alone. Peter, in this letter, in his final words to these believers, seeks to give them encouragement and to help them to mature and rise out of similar doubts. But buckle up. Peter doesn't give a, an easy three-step process to feeling God's grace and peace. He doesn't say, let go and let God. His answer is to make every effort, or in the New King James Version, to give all diligence to pursue a fruitful walk with the Lord. Moving to verse 5 for our second point, Peter moves to explaining how the knowledge that we previously discussed moves inexorably from the head 
to producing righteous living or wisdom. And that righteous living comes with the benefit of providing assurance of salvation for the believer. Starting in verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So again, to be clear, from the outset, verses 5 through 9 must be understood in, verse, in light of verses 1 through 4. Everything that we'll discuss for this point must be understood is flowing from faith through his divine power, which has granted to us. We have received this. It is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All of it is a gift. At first glance, we might be prone to looking at this list and just thinking of it as a good list of things to do, of moral imperatives for Christians, but there's far more to it than that. Peter describes these characteristics as a supplement or a logical and necessary outflowing of our faith. Faith comes first. It's foundational and primary. Without of it, none of these lived out virtues is possible. But these character traits, these lived out virtues, they keep believers from being ineffective or unfruitful. In other words, these characteristics allow Christians to be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That makes sense, doesn't it? Can you, can you imagine a baseball player who doesn't know how to play baseball? How fruitful is that? How, do, how about a musician who doesn't know how to play? How about a surgeon who doesn't know how to operate? I don't think we're going to go visit that surgeon. Do we think it's strange that musicians or athletes or doctors have to practice a skill to show fruit? Well, no. Well, how about a Christian who doesn't exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Well, we all know that passage, don't we? Galatians 5, you probably have this memorized. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And here we go. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How often we forget, verse 24, that that diligent effort, the crucifying of the flesh, is necessary to produce that fruit, again, by God's grace through the Holy Spirit. But diligence, every effort is required by believers in order to enjoy the blessing of that fruitful knowledge of Jesus Christ. Theologian Michael Green, I think this quote captures it very well. He says, the grace of God demands as it enables. Hear that again. The grace of God demands as it enables effort in a man. We are to bring into this relationship alongside what God has done every ounce of determination we can muster. Now, some of you in your minds might be thinking, where, where is the line? Are we skirting the line here between uh, being saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and skirting the line here of a works-based righteousness. 
My assertion is no reconciliation needs to be made between these ideas of faith in Christ, but then a faithful living that comes after that, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This seems to make, it, the reason I say that is because it is only enemies that need to be reconciled. Friends have no need to be reconciled. Both are true. We are saved by faith, by grace, by Christ alone. But the inevitable fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, will come. It is necessarily true that the Christian will bear fruit. So it seems to make sense in every other possible relationship. But in our minds, we, we have a mental block. It makes sense in baseball. Makes sense in surgery, makes sense in music, but in our minds, we have a hard time bridging that gap that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will produce godly living. So it's not, it's not surprising that we would see that same economy in the family of God, that our experiential knowledge of God, our fellowship with him would be enhanced by our willing obedience to his will. The teaching of Scripture of the free gift of salvation by faith to those who have trusted in Christ alone for the salvation of their souls, and the teaching that we are to pursue the fullest knowledge of God, both intellectually and experientially in godly living, though, and do that through diligent obedience to God's commands, need not be held in opposition. The primary issue becomes one of emphasis and order. The orthodox view is that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. It will produce inevitable fruit, fruit which is of the Spirit, because the Spirit has given life to those who were previously dead, but which at the same time gives the gift of being able to produce fruit. But the unorthodox view is that we are saved by a combination of faith and works from our own effort. It is in this economy that fruit is trying to be produced by a tree that is still dead. The tree must be alive in order to produce fruit. So briefly, we're going to walk through uh, this list of, uh, of virtues, and we're just going to have to skirt over them briefly. But I'd encourage you when you're at home, look over them more deeply to, to really dwell on what they are saying. So first, uh, beginning in verse 5, we have supplement your faith with virtue. Again, Peter highlights faith is the first and foremost quality. Next, we have virtue with knowledge. That knowledge encompasses both the mind and action, the wise living. It is right doctrine lived out. Then we have self-control. Wise living requires discernment and self-control. The ability to exercise faithfulness and submission to Christ and not submission to sinful passions. Remember Romans 6, 17 and 18, where Paul says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. You are no longer slaves of sin. Next, verse 6, self-control with steadfastness. That steadfastness or perseverance is not simply a Christian kind of gritting the, the teeth like Clint Eastwood and toughing out a situation that proceeds from trust in the promises of God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We saw that in verse three. Our steadfastness comes from the fact that God has given us all of those things. 
It is a call for us, friends, to remember God's great, his precious and very great promises. It is fitting that the Apostle Paul also had this in view in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And on, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. His, sorry, his appearing. Paul reminded himself frequently of God's very great promises as he strove to finish the race. He pursued that knowledge of God that resulted in right living before his Savior. Now for steadfastness with godliness. Again, verse 6. Godliness here refers to one who exercises a practical reverent awareness of God in every aspect of life. I love that. That reverence is awareness of God in every aspect of life. Christians, that should be us. There, we do not have a secular and a sacred part of ourselves. We are consistently one person on earth before God at all times. We are to be aware of God in every aspect of life. And then finally, verse 7, brotherly affection and love. For these two, we have love of the brethren and then a catch-all love. We are to, to love the body of Christ in a particular way, but we too are called to love the world, to manifest God's love for them. That term agape conveys a desire both within the body and outside the body to pursue the highest good of the one loved, which of, of course is how God loved us. So moving on. Does that describe you? Do these virtues describe you? Have you done an assessment of your fruit lately? Take the opportunity to remember that you were cleansed from your former sins and walk in newness of life. Well, moving on. Peter affirms that the type of knowledge of Jesus Christ that we've discussed doesn't only produce righteous living. This righteous living comes with a benefit of providing assurance, assurance of salvation for the believer. In verse 10, Peter states, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and G Savior, Jesus Christ. If we had more time, we would, we would jump over and see the, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Uh, that the parable of the sower is essentially a parable version of what Peter is admonishing for the unbeliever or encouraging for the believer to be more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And you see in that passage in Matthew 13, where at the end of it, Jesus makes this assessment. He said, as for what was sown on good soil, again, Matthew 13, 23, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. My friends, true spiritual life, life in Christ, will yield fruit, and that fruit is reflective of one who is in Christ. Peter calls for diligence in confirming your calling and election by practicing that righteousness. That righteousness is reflective of one who has already placed their faith and trust in Christ. Well, moving on in our final few minutes, Peter reminds these believers that as he is approaching death, 
He affirms what they already know, that their faith is not grounded in myths, but in a Savior who manifested himself in the flesh, giving witness to God's activity among, among mankind. We're going to go ahead and just start at verse 16 in our final minutes. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is fitting as we consider the, consider the poignancy of last words, that we arrive at Peter's recounting of the transfiguration. This event marked a rare but significant instance where Peter, along with James and John in Matthew 17, saw a momentary glimpse of the glory of Christ. He saw at a moment of time on earth what all Christians yearn to see and experience for eternity. Have you thought of that? As you've read that account of the transfiguration, have you pictured yourself in that scene being witness to the glory of Christ at that transfiguration? Peter encourages us by giving his recounting of that eyewitness account, stating it is his honor and glory from God the Father. And not only that, the Father's affirmation, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Let's move very quickly. Turn to Matthew 17, verses 1 through 7. I want to just bring out a couple details here in our closing moments. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 7. And in that passage, beginning in verse 1, it says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Friends, in our final moments, what does Jesus say right there? He says, Fear not. What we should actually be prepared to hear when we come to that passage is that Peter, James, and John dropped dead in that moment, never to be heard from again. But instead, verse 7, what we have there, sorry, verse, uh, verse 6, oh, sorry, 7, he says, rise and have no fear. 
for these three disciples to be in the presence of a holy God and not to have immediately died is testimony of God's incredible grace. Another place that we see that is Revelation 1. If you want to turn there just very briefly, Revelation chapter 1. It's a similar recounting, a similar experience. Starting at verse 17, it says, this is John. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. My friends, two instances in scripture, almost identical, where instead of these disciples immediately dying in the presence of a holy God, he puts his right hand on them and says, fear not. So, in conclusion, have you ever heard the, the phrase that it's the preacher's job to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? Peter, in these last words, speaks to both. Some of you come to a passage like this with doubts, and you say, your faith feels frail. Your life doesn't look like a life lived out in wisdom. There is comfort for you here. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith in Christ. So place your faith in Christ. As you do, partake of the means of grace that he's given you to grow in knowledge and wisdom. But for some of you, if you're comfortable, if you look at that list of virtues in verses 5 through 7 and you say, that looks pretty good. That looks a lot like me. Perhaps you need to take another look at those passages and ensure that you are following after your Savior, Jesus Christ, that you're not becoming puffed up, but that you also take comfort knowing that those virtues are, again, the fruit of what has already come before, faith in Christ. Well, the very final word that I'll read this morning comes from Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. And this is a word for all of us. We'll let Jesus have the last word here. And it says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love your word, and we thank you that we are saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. But we thank you as well that even as you tell us to pursue righteousness, as you tell us that we are to uh, be obedient to what we've been commanded by God, Lord, that it is your spirit that empowers that work. And Lord, that we can even be assured as we reflect on the ways that you have caused us to mature, that you have caused us to walk in your path, that that can give us assurance, that it can give us encouragement to keep pursuing, to keep running the race. And so, Lord, as we uh, just reflect on these final words of Peter, let them uh, become not only our last words, but also reflective of our first words, that we would live in light of them today. Amen.